Hello and welcome to Down With The Picture Box. I'm Ben Richards. And I'm Elia Jo. He's as white and male as they come. And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to discover those marginalised composers we don't know so well. That's right. So, <laughs> hello <laughs> listeners. That was hideously uncomfortable. Oh my God, just see Ben's face. <laughs> Viewers, this is the first... Right, so we should context this. We um, should context this before we just burst out laughing again. We are doing our first ever kind of video call. Normally we just do it like a phone call when we record with each other. But today, for various reasons, we're doing it face to face on Zoom. But it's <laughs> wonderful to be joined by the virtual avatar outline of our good friend, our favourite scouser, Ben Howard, who's come today to talk about a nice lady from somewhere in the East. Hello, Ben. How are you? Me too. Rest assured that Ben isn't going to do the entirety of this interview in Russian. But for the, for now, why don't you carry on in, in the native tongue of the fatherland? A tepir i rosiskoi federaci. Ei visio ishio jiv i vosim disia deviat let. Yes, hold on. Oh, right, yes. It's Sunday morning and Ben has just downed some lovely Russian... We, we don't do product placements on the pod, but, but any particular brand? <laughs> well, that was Smirnoff. It was on offer. Oh, Smirnoff would like to sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't normally drink. Vodka at nine thirty in the morning, but when I do, <laughs> I choose the cheapest. <laughs> oh dear! So, Murdoch is perfectly good. It, well, it was good enough for James Bond, so it was good enough for Sean Connery. So if it's good enough for Sean Connery, then it's good enough for Ben Howard. I think the faces so, of Ben's true. pulling at nine thirty in the morning don't necessarily. <laughs> that, it's going but... down now, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, I, I, I regret that decision. <laughs> anyway. anyway. What, yeah. This is not a vodka reviews podcast. Let's have a chat about some music. So, Ben, do you want to just kind of tell us what you said in English? Yes, um, that would help for those people that don't speak Russian. Um, and also for those that do speak Russian, I apologise for butchering the pronunciation of that. I'm especially concerned if Dan Alfit listens to this because I've been, <laughs> you know, I, I've had nightmares about mispronouncing the names. <laughs> um, I, I remember uh, a, a, an early dissertation meeting when I was talking about all the Russian composers I liked, and he then would go on after everyone and just correct my pronunciation of that of said person. Yeah, so, he, will, uh, he probably does, he normally tunes in, and if he knows who this is going to be about, then he definitely will be. So apologies in advance, Dan. Um, yeah, and especially for this one because I mean I've been told by several people how I am meant to say this um, wonderful lady's name. And I'm still scared that if I'm going to be mid-sentence, I'm still going to mess it up. And it's not particularly difficult. I've just now got a complex. Mm. I, I, it can't be worse than my Sophia goodbye, Delina. So That's what I said the first time. It goodbye, also will now get an angry email what? from Dan for, for saying that. <laughs> Sorry, I can guarantee it. Sophia goodbye, Delina, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually said... Hi. Today I'm going to be talking about Sofia Gubaidulina. She is a composer of the Soviet Union and also the Russian Federation. And she is still alive. 
She is 89 years old. 89. Wow. Does she have Instagram? Um, no. I, okay. I, I, did, I did look up Sufia Gubadilna. See, I've got, a, I've got a complex. I've been able to say her name perfectly. Sophia G. For about three years. Um, but no, we'll, we'll, we'll get through the, uh, the podcast. But no, I did look up um, Goodbye Dylan on Instagram and it turns out it's just a load of other Russian ladies with the same name. Oh. Actually her, which was, which was slightly disappointing because I wanted to see um, pictures from her. She lives in Appen, just outside Hamburg in Germany. Um, oh, right. Okay. I'm curious to sort of see what her, what her house was like. But there's a really good um, BBC documentary that was, I think, broadcast in, the 19, in 1990. Which is the you can find all three parts on um, on YouTube that wonderful wonderful uh, website, which is also not another <laughs> placement. But if YouTube wants to sponsor us, <laughs> uh, anyway, Ben, why don't you tell us all about? Well, I'm not going to say her name, but Sophia G. Sophie G. Sophie yeah. G. Sophie G. Wow. Okay, she's still alive. If she ever Sorry. listens to this and she hears you call her Sophie G. <laughs> I imagine you'll get another. Uh, you'll get an angry email in Russian. From something a, tells a, me that a, something a tells me that she probably doesn't listen to Apple Podcasts. But oh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Anyway, but, anyway, yeah. she was born in Christopol, which was the um, in 1931, which is the the, the capital of the of, of Tatarstan. Um, Sofia Gubadona is a Tatar Russian composer, um, and if you two hadn't been so selfish and featured bright Sheng, she would have actually been the first living composer featured. Um, but I guess I'll just have to settle for the oldest living composer featured instead. And as I've already said, she's 89 and considerably older than Sheng, who is only 65. So, and, so. The, and, the, and the first living female composer that we have discussed. There we go. I win on two fronts. I win. That's fine. I'm happy. <laughs> boxes, boxes ticked. Hooray. Exactly. Um, her, her father was a, a Volga Tatar, which was an indigenous population um, that inhabited the lower delta of the, of the Volga River around sort of by um, Sea of Azov, the Black Sea, that sort of area. Um, and her mother was a, a native Russian. Um, they both worked as a, an engineer and teacher, respectively. Um, and Sophia, at the age of five, sort of discovered music and she began immersing herself in, in ideas of, of composition. You know, of all the instruments, the, the piano became the musical centre of her life. Her parents bought, in her own words, an awful baby grand, in which her sister Vera would play the keys, whilst Sophia fiddled with the strings. I imagine a la John Cage, but, you know, before John Cage was cool. Mm. Um, you really can say that we were given riches by our poverty, she says, I wanted to become a composer from very early because I was convinced there was too little music in the world. We needed more. Maybe I was wrong in believing that. She has a sort of a, a wicked tongue-in-cheek sense of humour, which is one of the just one of the other things that really endears me to her in a sort of you know parasocial relationship sort of thing. Because I've never met her, but I think she's boss. Um, but one of the things that sets Sophia's music aside from um, other Soviet composers is the, the spirituality that became such a huge feature of her music. Um, and she first discovered these aspects of spirituality through Judaism. This is, of course, a, a sign of her personality and her interests that she kept hidden from her parents and society, not least because the Soviet Union was atheist and viewed religion and spirituality as a method of oppression 
implemented by the ruling classes to keep the working class in check. But she does treat these two interests as conceptually similar. And she says that she seeks to write music expressing and exploring spiritually based concepts. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. So, so obviously, yeah, like you say, religion, big no-no in Soviet Union at the time. Um, and presumably not, obviously not from a, from a, from a Jew- Jewish racial heritage either. Um, so quite, quite, the, quite the thing to hide. It, it is. It, the, the Judaism was something. It was. It was a way that she entered into ideas of spirituality. Mm. Um, and we'll when we get onto some of discussing some of the works later. I think especially sort of um, Canticle of the Sun and Offertorium sort of really delve into her um, very eclectic influences of, of spirituality and sort of religion as well. It wasn't. Mm. It wasn't exclusively Judaism, but it just so happened that that was her avenue in. So yes, as I say, I, I, I clunkily um, meant it sort of dropped that she were she went to Kazan Conservatoire, um, and so Goodbye Dolores' development as a composer, which took her to conservatoires in Kazan and Moscow, was actually cruci- crucially influenced by her relationship with her third husband. Um, third husband, by the exactly, wow. yes, no, um, she she didn't when she went to the conservatoires, she wasn't already on her third husband. It just so happened right. that the person that greatly influenced her in the conservatoires then um, happened to be her third husband. I, Again, I should have written that better. Um, but his name, I'll tell you his name, um, Peter uh, Menshenov, um, was actually a Russian musicologist and conductor. And he introduced her to the idea that the octave could actually be divided into 72 units and not just the 12 that you know composers usually fiddle around with. Um, There's too many anyway. 72 is a lot of notes. It really is. Um, yeah, it, it turns out that there were lots of notes hiding in between all those white and black spaces. 72. If we were to have a 72 note tone octave piano, it would be very long. It was actually, I, I believe there was a Russian um, who developed something similar. And I think it was... Um, a piano with just like a series of um he had like a normal piano and i think he had two manuals and then also like buttons on them so we press mm. the button to get a slightly you know sharper or slightly flatter um yeah. note depending on what he did and he, he wrote these massive sort of um choral pieces using these 72 i, I forget his name which really irritates me now because <laughs> i want to tell you his name um, but I don't feel that we have the time for me to Google. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, let me know and I'll put it on the Instagram afterwards. There we go. That's a great idea. But it was, it, it, you know, it, the, the Russians, um, one, one of the things in their, in their sort of wanting to be as anti-Western as possible in every aspect, um, sort of, you know, they, they, they created fantastic pieces of music. There's one by a guy called Asimov, which is um, Symphony of Sirens, which isn't the lovely sirens that, you know, comb their hair and sing and um, and lure, um, you know, ships onto the rocks. We t- I'm talking about factory sirens, mm. the ones that call people on and off from work. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear. There's a, there's a construction, um, a reconstruction, on, again, on YouTube. Um, if YouTube do want to sponsor the patriarchy part, I want some royalties. No. Um, <laughs> Back to Menshaninov, he, he yep. also suggested that music sort of evolved through eras, he, linear eras, harmonic eras and sonoristic eras. And Goodbye Dylan has said, I realised that as a composer of a sonoristic age, I must focus on rhythm. 
And that was what led me increasingly to use a Fibonacci sequence in dividing up rhythm in, and time in my music. The Fibonacci system is always about approaching divine. So again, this is another sort of aspect to her spirituality. Um, starting her studies in 1959, she and her other classmates were subject to a Soviet ban on Western music, with the exception of Bela Bartok, who for some reason the Soviets loved. Um, there were dormitory raids with officials looking down to track, um, track down Western scores, and Stravinsky was particularly a sought-after composer, um, probably because you know he was famous for you know being Russian, but in Paris, yeah. also, you know, flirted with fascism, which is something we don't always necessarily like to think about Stravinsky because we'd like to think about his wonderful music, but it turns out he was, uh, um, <clears throat> went through a dodgy period. I think, I think he sorted himself out. I think he gave his head a wobble. Um, <clears throat> and we he was there, he was mistaken, but, you know, he did, as I say, flirt with, with fascism. So you can imagine that the Soviet Union wasn't best pleased with him being a native Russian. However, in an interview later on, Sophia actually admitted, she said, we knew Charles Ives, we knew John Cage, and we actually knew everything on the slide. And she took this unofficial knowledge with her to the Moscow Conservatory, where she continued her studies in 1959. Um, and it's actually something that happened later on in her life. Um, it shows that these raids on Soviet composers didn't actually stop after, after the university days. It carried on and followed them throughout their life. One day in 1937, obviously years after her graduation from the conservatoire, um, goodbye Dylan, she was attacked in the lift of her Moscow apartment building. Um, this man started to strangle her and the, the composer thought that this is it, the end of her life. And of all of the regrets that she could possibly have, the one that came to her mind is that she would never complete the bassoon concerto on which she'd been working. <laughs> oh, musicians. I know, yeah. Your dying moments. Oh, no, the bassoon. <laughs> yeah, I'm, right, I'm right in the middle of this really good cadenza. I'm not going to The most amazing idea. Oh. Yeah, and she, she said, I'm not afraid of death, but of, of violence. Uh, she told her biographer, Michael Kurtz, a little later, and she, she actually got exasperated with the attacker and said, why so slow? <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> oh, wow and for some reason her words scared him off and <laughs> yeah also kids if you're listening if you're getting strangled just ask them why they're taking so bloody long so um, basically she she she, <laughs> she decided that her attacker wasn't doing a good enough job basically I, I, I think I think that the whole sort of like I'm not afraid of death but violence I think she wanted her death not to be agonising and Painful, quick and painless, she wanted yeah. it to be over quicker. So therefore she was trying to, I, I imagine sort of going, well, I can't fight this fella off. So mm. I'm going to ask him just to, you know, get it over and done with. But yeah. rather than actually him speeding up, he just sort of went, oh, whoa. Yeah. What am I Reevaluate my life. Sorry, mm. yeah. yeah. Have a nice day. Mm. Which is, you know, we have to assume is what went through the his head. But the, the, the um, Friends of hers assumed it must have been a KGB agent. Um, right. the, the KGB had already turned over her apartment, searching for you know dissident writers, microfilms, and um, Zamizdats. And Zamizdats were secret publications and distributions of government banned literature in the in the Soviet Union. Um, mm -hmm. So I realised that that's not a very common word that we use in the UK. Mm -hmm. mm. That is that is very true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
and sort of with sort of later on with when you know when it came to her final um compositions and her final evaluations with, with typical Soviet transparency. Her teachers criticised her music and it was deemed irresponsible. Um, her, her, her teachers justified this criticism on, ex- on her exploring of alternative tunings. Again, those 72 um, you know, notes that we can get from uh, the, the octave. Um, and however, despite this setback, it was actually during her time at the Moscow Conservatoire that she became acquainted with everyone's dear Soviet friend, Dmitry Shostakovich. Um, and oh, some, of, yeah. some of us here even have framed pictures of leaves that were taken from his grave. I do. It's up there. Mm. You can see I, there, I, there, I, that one. That's a bit sadistic, not going to lie, but that's OK. It, it, it is a little bit, but I wonder what wonderful friend went to Russia and brought that back for her. Um, <laughs> oh yes anytime dear um that's cute but you know Dmitry Shostakovich even actually evaluated her final examinations so like, this is a this was a big deal wow. like, you know, in, in multiple ways and he actually encouraged her to continue on her compositional path despite others calling it mistaken he said be yourself don't be afraid of being yourself my wish for you is to continue on your own incorrect way and responding to this, <laughs> I, I know it's it seems backhanded, but for a Soviet, that's that's a that's a compliment. Yeah, that is a big compliment. Mm. And Sophia said, "I'm I'm grateful for the whole of my life for the for those wonderful words. They fortified me and were exactly what a young composer needed to hear from an older one. It gave me the courage to follow my own path." Mm. Um. But this sort of early criticism from her own teachers was never really forgotten. And Goodbye Delana always considered herself to be a little more cautious than her other contemporaries. She started experimenting with serious techniques much later than other composers of her generation. However, she doesn't necessarily view her caution as being a negative thing. She even refers to herself as being a very late autumnal fruit kind of composer. Um, But when... I know. I, I quite. I quite like that. Um, that sort of self evaluation. Um, mm. I'm. I'm a very late autumnal fruit kind of guy. Um, what is an autumnal fruit? Uh, um, plums. Plums. I don't know I, plums. I, I, no, no, I don't think plums are. We used to have a plum tree. Oh, oh that's, I, I apologise to all those plum aficionados, but I know blackberries are. Blackberries. Yeah. Because oh. there used to be a massive um, in my house back in Liverpool. And we live right next to a, a big sort of field and they have loads and loads of blackberry bushes on the back mm. of the go. And we'd like, honest to God, like, pick about five kilograms worth of blackberries. Oh, wow. It was, it was, it was incredible. But then um, uh, some, you know, private landowner decided that they were going to build houses for people. Selfish. Oh. I know. Horrific. You're allowed to swear on the podcast, Ben. It's okay. I'm trying not to. I mean, we get to Stalin a little bit later. I might call him a dick, but, you know. <laughs> well, when we had Matthew Swan on, he was like, can I swear on this podcast? And we hadn't swore on the podcast. And we were like, yeah. And then he just came out and he was like, this is a fucking disgrace. And we were like, oh, okay, right. <laughs> well, I, there we go. I think, I think that's my bar. Yeah. If I go above that bar, I'm really pushing my luck. But I'm go- I think I'm going to keep with the... There's, um, there's only a handful of words above that bar. And quite frankly, none of them are appropriate for the Patreon podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're not. They're when applied, inappropriate for this podcast. When, when applied to Stalin, they may be. But, <laughs> oh. <you know. laughs> oh, wow. 
So autumnal yeah, fruit. We established that she's a, a really ripe blackberry. Yes, she is. She's a she's a very ripe black. She's Ready still alive. She's still alive. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> moving back before we really do derail here. When yeah. when when Goodbye Lona talks of serialism in in the context of Soviet composers, she says that by the time it became available for her and her contemporaries to explore. Serialism was almost ready-made, already settled into place. It was accomplished and even in a way sort of over. It was it was so last year. Um, mm. and it, but it was still something that inspired enthusiasm, she continued, but not the ground where I wanted to live. I mean, this sort of acceptance and almost subsuming of the serialist techniques without ever going through a traditional serialist phase gave us fantastically interesting works. There's one called Might in Memphis, which has like, you know, these evocative, but jarring juxtapositions. And then there's the dramatic declamations of her piece, um, Rubaiyat, um, both composed in the 60s, but when she was fresh out of the conservatoire. Mm. Obviously, I, I have listened to Patriarchy Pod, and I know that one of the big things that you guys like to discuss um, is sort of, you know, the socio-historical context to what is going on at the time and yeah. so I, want to, I, I if, you, if you'll allow me i would love to talk a little bit about soviet attitudes towards women yes please oh yes early soviet attitudes to women were refreshingly progressive Ooh. lenin the first leader of the ussr taught that the socialist realist ideal demands the abolition of all kinds of exploitation by of man by man and thus all forms of social inequality which explores essentially the idea that men and women should be placed as equal within society. Lenin mm. also stated that petty housework crushes, strangles, stullifies and degrades the woman, chains her to the kitchen and to the nursery, and wastes her labour on barbarously unproductive, petty, nerve-wracking, stultifying and crushing dudgery. Wow. He, he not want to mince his words. No, I was going to say, don't hold yeah, back, right? And, but sort of after, after the Bolshevik coup, it, it's clear that women were supported by prominent politicians from within Russia. Under the socialist ideal, the concept was that the woman needed to be free from men economically, which meant that they needed more freedom to enter the workforce. The, the impression that Lenin imposed on others allowed women to participate fully on equal terms with men in work, political life, creative arts and social activism. This included passing laws allowing abortion, the ability to vote to divorce from your husband and enshrined equal pay and rights for women in Soviet law. Why we, is that more progressive than some places in today. our Western world? I was going to say, hold your breath, because this is the reason that Stalin's a dick. One of them. Right. Um, we, we can't actually attribute all of this to Lenin. If it had it not been the dogged determination of um, Alexandra Kollontai, then I believe that Lenin's plan wouldn't have actually gone so far. Um, he was, after all, a little bit of a sexist himself. Um, <laughs> And, and I won't talk about too much about Alexandra Kollontai too much as this meant this is meant to be more about Goodbye Dorna, but she is an incredibly important figure in the struggle for women's rights. She was the first woman in history to become an official member of a government cabinet, and in 1919 set up the Zhdenotel, which worked to improve the status of women in the Soviet Union. She was an advocate of free love and became one of the most influential Marxist thinkers of her generation and is still held in very high regard among Marxist feminists. And as, as you said, this, Ellie, this sounds, of course, remarkably utopian and mm -hmm. goes some way to show 
in my opinion, what the Soviet Union could have turned out like had Lenin not died. And of course, hadn't Stalin not been a complete and utter psycho psychotic mass murderer? Well, yeah, there is that. Um, yeah. In 1936, Stalin introduced what he called the family laws, which repealed a lot of advances in women's rights in the USSR. Divorce was made illegal again. There was no more access to abortions and homosexuality was outlawed as deviant behaviour. Um, Goodbye Dorna was lucky enough to actually receive her musical education during the Khrushchev thaw, but that didn't afford her many more privileges. It was just slightly less shit of an environment than during Stalin's reign. Mm. Um, but again, interestingly, Goodbye Dilla doesn't consider herself to have been oppressed um, or exposed to gender discrimination during her career. This is this sort of idea is further supported by a biographer, Michael Kurtz, who we mentioned before, who claims that Goodbye Dilla never experienced exclusion for being a woman. Mm. This could mean that Goodbye Dilla was not restricted throughout her career due to sexism. However, some restrictions enforced by the government may contrast this idea due to the expectations of fulfilling the familial role. And as I say, after all, she was married three times, four times, I think. Three times. Let's go with three, because I'm not sure about the fourth time. Mm. So she was married three and a half times. Um, <laughs> by the time Goodbye Dilla actually re reached her composition maturity, well, I say mature enough that she could actually start earning money from her compositions in the way that Soviet artists were paid had been changed. Um, Khrushchev, Khrushchev assumed power of the Soviet Union in 1953, which is also the year that Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary completed the first successful ascent of Mount Everest, just in case you wanted to know. Mm -hmm. um, but his, um, Khrushchev's administration consolidated the authoritative position of the Union of Soviet Composers as the dominant administrative authority over the state sponsorship of classical music, something which had begun during the later Stalin years. Um, one of the things that was afforded to a lot of Soviet composers was guaranteed housing, um, a guaranteed sort of wage, irrespective of what you wrote, um, guaranteed jobs. And then if the government especially liked your, um, your, your music, you could be awarded a Stalin Prize, which is one of the only good things oh. that came of the Stalin administration, is that he gave you money if he liked your music. <laughs> But no, it was, there's one, there's one. There was, uh, was a recent um, discussion we were having in one of the Antigna Soviet module, um, of course, uh, at the moment. Um, and we were discussing Song of the Forest by Shostakovich, and he won a, a, a Stalin Prize of 100,000 rubles for this piece of music. Um, and then we were looking at how um, afterwards, you know, the likes of, uh, I think, Taruskin and uh, Frovola Walker were sort of discussing how good this piece of music actually is. And our, our lecturer, she said, um, what do you think Shostakovich would make of all this, you know, people ripping down his music or saying that it's OK? And I just sort of went, well, he has 100,000 rubles. I don't think he'd care. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. How much is that in pounds? I, I don't know, because it's also adjusted for inflation, but... It's about seven, at the moment, it's about 70 rubles to the pound. I imagine it was, I don't know, maybe like 30, 40. It's still, it's a lot of money. A lot of money. It's a lot of money. You wouldn't, um, you wouldn't say no, would you? Absolutely, oh, absolutely not. Um, yeah. <laughs> sort of also during this sort of period, during the Khrushchev thaw, there sort of emerged two channels of music. There was the official government-sanctioned music and then unofficial music. There's, 
actually an excellent book um, on this by Peter Schmelz called Such Freedom If Only Musical. Um, I'm not advertising that book because it's very expensive, but if you can... They want to sponsor us. If you want, if Peter Schmelz wants to sponsor us. No, Um, but uh, along with my good mate, Alfred Schnitker, Goodbye Dylan was considered a part of this unofficial channel due in no small part to the view of the Union of Soviet Composers that she was a she was sort of part of the Soviet avant-garde. Um, in 1979, um, Krenikov publicly denounced Goodbye Dylan and other experimental composers in a public address um, to the Composers Union. And uh, similar attacks surfaced in the state-sponsored media like Pravda, which was also the, the same newspaper that, um, that, that, that called Lady Macbeth muddle instead of music. She mm. said that being blacklisted and so unperformed gave her artistic freedom, even if I couldn't earn much money, she says. And I could write what I wanted without compromise. Um, now, I also realised that I haven't actually... The, 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 these composers were called the, the Kranikov Seven. And, they, mm. and I think I discuss it a little bit later on. Um, if I don't, I will just sort of, you know, say something in a really inappropriate random place. And then I'm sure the magic of editing, you can just sort of splice my wonderful voice and just whack it on the end of this bit here. I will. It shall be done. Um, and again, sort of like in the vein of making money, a lot of Soviet composers, um, Goodbye Dilma, turned to film composition as a way to make money. Um, she was, she's actually most famous for writing the music to the famous Soviet cartoon, The Adventures of Mowgli. And while this may seem potentially somewhat demeaning to a composer of her caliber, it was an easy way to make money. And even composers like Mikoslav Weinberg, who was a very good friend of Shostakovich, um, turned to scoring cartoons. He actually wrote the music to Vinnie Puch, which is the Soviet version of Winnie the Pooh. Yes, I remember that. My favourite book. First year music. Oh, and it's it's a great. It's, I, I've I've watched it. There's, there's quite a few really cool Soviet cartoons. There's another one called uh, "Hedgehog Gets Lost in the Fog," um, and that one is it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a hedgehog, and he gets lost in the fog. But Vinnie Puck is really interesting because it starts. Like, Vinnie Puck is really philosophical, and he's a, he, he's a problem solver. And at one point, he goes to Piglet's house, and he's. Um, he's speaking to Piglet and he's sort of going, I want to go and get some honey. Um, but I, do you have any balloons so I can get up to the honey? Cause I can't climb up the tree. And so he goes, I've got a pink balloon. I've got a green balloon. I've got a blue balloon. Um, is it for those of you who want to know, Ellie is currently showing us a picture of Piglet and Vinnie Puck with a blue and green balloon. You mm. can't see it, but I'm sure that there will be a picture that accompanies the, the sort of like, screen grabs on the on the instagram Absolutely. Uh, follow the instagram no um but you know mowgli was actually completed after the fall of the soviet union mm. it was distributed to 10 different countries and um, there's, there's a particularly wonderful dubbing job done in the u.s version um you know you, you ever seen like a badly dubbed chinese film where yeah. the mouth just just doesn't it what the, what the mouth is doing and what words come out just doesn't work yeah, they can get away with it roughly um, with with it being a cartoon because you haven't got quite the nuance of the way the people's mm-hmm. mouths move and everything. But there are still aspects where the mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. Oh, um, 
and but in terms of film music, I think actually Goodbye Dylan's most recent work was actually a 2013 film called Mary Queen of Scots, which was a, a joint British and French endeavor. Um, I haven't seen the film, but I've watched the trailer, and the music is quite cool. It's sparse, it's a little bit atonal, it's, it's, it's definitely unsettling. Is it but, really dark, the film? I don't know, because there was one recently that came out with Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie. Yeah. That one that came out very recently. But this 2013, I don't know much about the film. I just know that she wrote the music and I just sort of went, oh, she wrote the music. Let's include that in the, uh, in the pod. Mm. No, good. I'll it's, not, it's, it's nice to see that she's still sort of, like, that's quite recently, isn't it? You know? Yeah, no, she's, she's, still, she's still writing. She says that she finds it a lot harder than she used to. Mm. Um, and that she needs she needs quiet. That's why she lives in a in a village outside Amper. Am- I conflated Appen and and Hamburg there, and I said a word that doesn't exist. She lives <laughs> in a small village outside Hamburg called Appen. Mm. Um, but we can. This is actually a nice segue into the three works I actually want to discuss. Yeah. Um. So. Be yourself, don't be afraid of being yourself. My wish for you is to continue on your own incorrect way. The immortal words of Shostakovich. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I've mentioned, as I've already mentioned with, you know, Night in Memphis and, and Robayat, Goodbye Dilna wasn't afraid of experimentation. During the 60s and 70s, she composed music that included interval, intervallic and tumbral, you know, weird concepts, as well as experimenting with extended technique. And also, you know, conflating instruments that uncommon arrangements of instruments, basically. The ones that springs to mind are the five attitudes for harp, double bass, and percussion. And mm. um, these attitudes are exploiting the tumble effects of each instrument. And Goodbye Dolina concentrates on the nuances of colour that she can extract from each each instrument. But that's not one of the three pieces that I want to discuss. I'm trying to get as many pieces in here as I possibly can. <laughs> um, but the first one is called Offertorium which everyone will love to know, was composed in 1980, revised in 82 and 86, because, you know, she wanted to make it better three times over. Um, it was Exactly. It was it was a violin concerto for, for Guidon Kramer. And I included this, one, because I think it's a wonderful piece, and also because I know that our dear friend Ellie is also a violinist. Mm. Um, so after you've learned the Shostakovich, this is your next one. Okay. Um, the idea actually came to her to write this piece after an offhand, almost sort of half-serious request by Kramer. Um, but as I said, by the time it was completed, both Kramer and Goodbye Dona weren't in particularly good standing with the clicky-visted Soviet bureaucrats and the powers that be. Um, in particular, Goodbye Dona had been blacklisted by Tikhon Krenikov for taking part in unapproved participation of Soviet works in the West. So the work had to be smuggled across the border to Kramer, who gave the premiere in Vienna in 1981. Um, it was only actually in the 1980s that Goodbye Dilma's works were actually being recognised in the USSR, let alone Western Europe. But this concerto in particular catapulted her fame and notoriety across Europe and the US, in no small part to, to Kramer being very specific where he performed it. He, he toured the piece um, you know, focusing specifically on influential and cultural centres in order to get the widest sort of, um, you know, sort of, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? You know what I mean? Most exposure, that's the one. Because we all know exposure pays the bills. Um, 
Offertorian's opening theme actually dates back to the 18th century. It's a theme that Frederick the Great of Prussia requested that Bach use to write a fugue. But Bach, being Bach, decided to use it in a musical offering instead. And Goodbye Gilner treats this melody as if she were Weyburn, perhaps, as every few bars or even every other note, the instruments that plays the melody changes. It's a technique called hocketing, which mm -hmm. I actually found out derives from the Dutch word for hiccup. Oh, yeah. But it's just another example of Goodbye Gilner playing around with these tumble effects, and it's a little hourly disorientating. Um, the, the opening melody also consolidates the crucial spiritual ideas of the piece. It has been said that the theme mentioned, the, the, the Frederick the Great theme, theme, essentially offers or sacrifices itself throughout the first throughout the per piece's first section. Um, and in the in in the final portion of the piece, the coda, the, the theme is presented again. This time backwards, so transfigured, like the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, which is coming up soon. Or no, it's not. It has already happened. I get confused. I'm a lapsed Catholic. But this time it is backwards and the theme is now transfigured. And the music finishes in this sort of rapturous medieval style. Um, it, it, the concerto forms part of a cycle of three concertos, which by Dona sees as forming an, an instrumental mass, although they are actually very rarely performed together. But it's just a cool idea. Should someone ever want to program them all together? Like a song cycle of concerto. Maybe, maybe your 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 good friend Mr. Swan would want to program them all together. Yes, him. he likes. Like, do yeah. a, do like a patriarchy pod, City of London Symphonia tie-in, and do a series of concerts. Exactly, and we can also we can also um, get in um, as yet unnamed potentially Russian music specialist consorts to be involved as well. Oh, Ben. I know, foreshadowing. foreshadowing. Um, the, the, the second piece I want to discuss is called Canticle of the Sun. And Ooh. I know one of your critiques last week of, uh, of, uh, of um, uh, Chevalier Saint-Georges was that he didn't write any choral pieces, Ben. You didn't like it. And yeah. I <laughs> left. Yeah. Um, but this was written and dedicated to Miss... Miss Mr. Slav Rostopovich for his 70th birthday, obviously written for cello. It's also scored for choir and percussion. So if you've listened to it, Ben, have you listened to it? I have, yes. Wonderful. I gave them a big, big playlist to listen to, I think, yes. a few days ago. Quite a long playlist. But no, this was like, we were talking, we were chatting before we, before we started recording about this. And it there's a, it's, there's a, I find it interesting that it sort of exists in a sort of almost permanent stasis. This piece, it's sort of, it's it's not it's not like, and I don't mean like in, in a kind of minimalistic sense, but more in a kind of, it feels like it has the space to breathe and just to exist as, you know, not it's not trying to sort of say anything uber specific. It's just allowing. It's this kind of, like we've been talking about the spirituality aspect. It feels very. I'm not going to say it feels very spiritual because that's such a weak thing to say, but I did just say it. Um, but it's it's just one of those things where you you get you get the sense that that actually part of the experience of listening to it is is actually your own thought process and your own reaction to it is actually very important to to kind of it as as, as, a, as an idea as a concept rather than just a piece of music which is like which can exist in its own right. It's quite it it's almost it's almost sort of like as if there's a dialogue going on you can't hear obviously on a recording but 
is kind of, I think, quite important. It's, it's interesting that you say that because this is one of the pieces that I think really combines a lot of the spiritual ideas. You know, it includes Catholic, Orthodox, Muslim and Jewish elements and mm. canticle evokes an interaction and almost interdependency of the traditional four elements as well, earth, wind, fire and air, as well as sun, moon, life and death. And in trying to depict these, Goodbye Dorna makes remarkable demands on the soloist. But then again, Roster Poach was a fantastic cellist. Yeah, so he was. She probably thought, if I'm going to be able to write this crazy music for anyone, it's this guy. Um, mm. In one passage, the, the, the cello's C string has to be tuned down between phrases, and then a stick is substituted for the bow before the soloist abandons the cello altogether. I imagine places it on the stage, doesn't just, you know, throw it away and hide it somewhere. Um, <laughs> but it's to prompt responses from the choir with a flexitone played with a double bass bow. And, you know, when you actually listen to the piece or actually see it performed, it doesn't seem gimmicky. It's not, no. it's not alienating in any way. Because um, I know that sometimes extended techniques, people can see and listen to them and sort of go, I don't, what's the point in this? Mm. But in, instead, it sort of creates something that's sometimes unsettling, but it always seems to involve ritual. And mm. in, in that the musicians and audience alike feel like a part of the performance of this piece. Um, BBC Music Magazine said that the canticle is not so much a concerto like conversation as it is a follow my leader mystical journey in the glorification of the creator, the elements, life, and eventually death. You know, this is just a great example of how her spirituality comes to be the biggest structural component of her compositional style. Yeah. And the last work I sort of want to highlight in this extraordinary woman's compositional output is Stimmen Vishtumen, which means voices, silence. Because this is something you said, you know, the, the space for her music to breathe, to, you know, there are aspects of silence that run through her entire sort of compositional output. And mm. Stimmen Vishtumen is, again, is one of these, silence is in the, in the title. And I think for a long time, you know, you've had Mozart, it was like saying, you know, music is the silence in between the notes. Mm. You have John Cage's four minutes thirty three, mm. um, which we we all know secretly was just because he forgot about a commission that he had coming up. We, we, mm. That that has to be the case. No one has no one has the audacity to go up to somebody and go, "Oh yeah, yeah, you paid me a lot of money. Here's the piece, just three movements of tacit." That's not a thing. <laughs> he forgot. He he forgot about that commission. I, that is the ultimate. I haven't got a decent excuse to, for an extension on my essay, isn't it? Like the dog ate my homework. Yeah, yeah. it is, and it's 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 you know everyone sort of goes, oh, if you ever if you ever feel bad about procrastinating, remember that Mozart wrote the overture to one of his operas on the day it was due to be premiered. I mean, there are two things wrong with that. One, Mozart was arguably a musical genius and so can afford to procrastinate. You can't. And yeah. secondly, if you want a real procrastinator, John Cage. Yeah. yeah, for sure. We got up on the morning of the performance and decided, do you know what? Can't let them I'll wing it. Work. Yeah. There we go. Tass it. Off you go. Again, yeah. this is not about John Cage. It's about Goodbye Dorna. Um, but Stimmen Verstummen is made up of 12 movements and prior, primarily organised around two themes. Now, buckle in, you two and everyone listening, because I'm about to say a lot of numbers in quick succession. Here um. we go. Hey, warm up. 
that vodka's coming in handy now. Um, the first theme is that of a major triad, occurring as a D major in the first, third, and fifth movements, and as G major triad in the 10th and 12th movements. The second theme, that of effort and ruin, occurs in the second, fourth, and sixth movements. Movements one, three, five, and seven become progressively shorter according to the proportions of the Fibonacci sequence and breathe. Well done. That was like very nice, Ben. From Hamilton. Very I, nice. I have that was really off the cuff, and that has not been something that I have perhaps in the mirror at all. Hundred percent. Yeah. As we said before, we do not prepare for this podcast. Okay, no, you two don't. I do. Ellie I, does. I, no, okay, I. I, sent, I remember sending that, you know, when this was like a 1,500 words that I prepared on this, and Ben said, this is more work that you've done than we've ever done for any of our other pieces. And I then continued to make more and more notes and eventually got to 7,000 words. Yeah. And I condensed it back to just under 3,000, just to, you know, be able to discuss things. And Ben still insists this is the most work he's ever seen done on one of these episodes. So I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite happy with myself. I mean, I'm not saying that Ellie doesn't do doesn't doesn't make notes and reads from them, but like I think even she would would agree that 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 they are not necessarily as they're not as com- thorough. But then I do have to do a drawing and edit them every week. So whereas I have none of those things to do, and I still don't prepare. So shocking, and Ellie. If you ever want to replace one Ben for another Ben, I'm always here. I know where you are. Thanks, um, but. If, you know, this symphony, Vistimen, is it Vistimen No, it's not. It's Stimmen Vistimen. That's all. Yeah. After all those wonderful long sentences about movements and words, and I mess up the title of the piece, the, the symphony is notable for its careful and innovative use of silence. Though the, the eighth movement has the largest proportions of the work, the climax actually takes place in the ninth movement when the conductor motions before a silent orchestra. The motions the conductor makes are meant to make his hands move increasingly farther apart from each other. Again, you won't be able to see this, but I move my hands farther apart, demonstrating that. Mm. Um, Move apart from each other according, again, to the Fibonacci sequence. And this conductor solo is repeated at the end of the work, and after the last note is sounded, the conductor continues to motion for several minutes which, as anyone who's ever tried to conduct before, will realise that that is a lot easier than it sounds. Mm. To just be stood in front of people, waving your arms, and they just do nothing. Well, yeah, because that's actually what normally happens when you when you want to play actual music. Mm. Um, it starts really interesting, though, because, like, it, it, it's, it, you know, we always talk about the conductor being the, the one that can't make any noise. But in that, effectively, what's happening is that they are being made into an instrument of some kind of expressive quality, whether that quality is a visual one rather than an oral one. Um, I think that's fascinating. That's really interesting. I, I like, I, 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 as a conductor myself, I appreciate that that is, that that is kind of giving the conductor's job an entirely new kind of role and, and sort of um, purpose. Uh, I like that. That's great. No, it, it it is interesting, especially when I, for me, taking into consideration the fact that when I first heard this piece, it mm. was on a recording on Spotify, and so the final movement ended, and I still had three minutes. And I was like, "What's going on?" They just yeah. have three minutes of silence at the end. I imagine where the conductor is still doing what he's meant to be doing, 
Yeah. I didn't understand that because I couldn't see it. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the thing. These Some of these pieces really do have to be appreciated yeah. live, don't they? And I think that's what, I think that's one of the big things about Goodbye Dylan's music is that, as you say, it, it's best, it's best appreciated live because a lot yeah. of it was involved. That's the same with a lot of Soviet music. Mm-hmm. Like, it took me until I really played Shostakovich that I felt like I completely had got to grips with it and understood it. Because I think you have to be completely immersed in it before you understand it. Mm. I thought. No, absolutely. Because a lot of Soviet music is centred and focused, especially the earlier stuff, around um, around the proletariat, around the workers. The idea is that, you know, they used to have, there used to be like, you know, composers that would exclusively write workers' songs. Yeah. So that, you know, people in factories could, could, could sing them. You know, most factories had their own separate choir. Um, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, this is this is something that could be, you know, a, a different episode. Not necessarily looking at a specific composer, but looking at the way that music was designed in the early Soviet era, sort of, like, you know, from 1919 up until about, you know, 32 before, as I say, Stalin went absolutely nuts. Mm. And looking at how music was sort of... Um, integrated into the workplace and was integrated among society and how it was used as a vehicle yes to peddle propaganda and to peddle you know socialist realism and the soviet way of life but also included people and included a mass movement of teaching people music that i Mm. don't think has ever been repeated yeah yeah i i appreciate that from a political and you know, societal point of view, the mm. Soviet Union was awful. It was yeah. far from brilliant in any stretch of the imagination. But especially sort of like the early Soviet optimism that you find in the years of Lenin after the Civil War and mm. sort of just the first few years that Stalin came into power before we started to crack down, there was an awful lot of freedom that these people were able to experience. Mm. And there was a lot, it was very, you know, it was quite a liberating experience. And, you know, a lot of people were really excited to see what happened. Um, yeah. And as I say, it, it, I feel it a shame that I, I feel that it would, for me, from, from a historical point of view, I'd have loved to have seen what happened had Lenin lived longer. Yeah. And That's I'd a like huge... To, what if in history, isn't it? Exactly. It really, it really is. Yeah. Um, and when I'm talking about Goodbye Dylan, we're talking, you know, quite a lot of time afterwards. You know, she, she started, it was 50 she entered the Kazan, Kazan um, Conservatoire. Yeah. And so things had changed. You know, the optimism had left. You had, you'd had, you'd had, had Stalin and you have the Khrushchev Thor. But it wasn't until much later, sort of like the 80s, and then eventually the collapse of the Soviet Union, that this true freedom was sort of able to to flourish in, you know, and freedom in a very sort of capitalist sense, which I argue isn't freedom. But this is not a podcast. (laughs) And I I shall stop now before I get myself into trouble. But let's let's take it back to somewhere where we can talk freely and 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 sort of wrap up our thoughts on on Sophia. I mean, obviously, I feel like in the in the uh, this feels terribly inappropriate when we're talking about a live eighty nine year old so um, former Soviet Russian Federation composer about 
Tinder swiping right or swiping left. Somehow it seems <laughs> rather inappropriate. Um, but I feel like, Ben, you provided us today with such a, not just detailed, but vivid discussion and and thought on, on, on her and her life and, and also her in her context. And I think that particularly is really amazing to hear, you know, this, the, the, the fact that perhaps people don't really know or understand the history of female issues in Soviet Russia. Um, and, and, and it's actually interesting because it's not just a simple, she was oppressed and she overcame her oppression kind of story. It's actually much more nuanced than that. Um, and um, I think, yeah, what a f- fascinating woman. And with an amazing life. With an amazing life. And I think musically, I think probably this is some of the most challenging music we've discussed on this podcast. Um, and I think that's partly because of the, like I said, to, when I think when we talked about Bright Chain, just partly because of the era that we initially looked at, have been looking at, has been very much focused on the kind of late romantic period. Um, it is really refreshing to hear a, a voice like hers and and to just to hear idea you know just i just feel like the music is treated in such a different way to to how we we conventionally <laughs> appreciate music and um and yeah and, and actually but also surprisingly accessible um you know this isn't like harrison burt russell chaos this is quite it's you know it's 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 definitely listenable to it might not necessarily make an impression the first time around but like i think it I think it's stick, great. stick with it. Yeah. Be listen to it, go, this is a bit weird. Listen to it again. And then you'll sort of go, actually, no, I, I get it. I understand it. My, my the one I'd, I'd definitely go in for Vistelman, um, uh, Stim and Vistelman. That would be the yeah. one that I'd enter with because I think it's quite easy to listen to it. It reminds me a lot of Messian's Tarantino's Tar- 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 Symphony. I've pronounced that yeah. wrong. I'll stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I I agree. There are some bits of it that I listened to, and I was like, mm. same as I did with Bright Sheng. And there were yeah. some bits that I listened to, and I was like, I love this. I really love this. Like especially in the Canticle. Yeah. But um, yeah, swipe right, swipe left. I'm swiping right. Right. Swipe. Swipe right. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I'd have, I'd have. Terminated our friendship had you said swipe left. <laughs> no, no, let's no, we're swiping right. Um, yeah. This has been a real privilege, actually, um, to Thank have somebody. You so much. Yeah. Actually, we should have just said the reason Ben's an old friend from Holloway who's currently studying um, uh, for his master's at Bristol University. Um, he's very much uh, has a special interest in Russian music and no. is currently in, is currently in the process of doing something about that performance wise um which we are all involved in and we will hopefully do some plugging for in the coming weeks and months i mean if you didn't do any plugging i'd be again horrendously offended but no it's as i say it's it's, it's a friends thing a group of friends we got together we thought we like russian music what have we got to lose and you know in typical in typical sort of covid fashion it was an offhanded comment from somebody that spawned an idea in my head and I'm yeah. way too far. Is there any? Is there any possibility that sometime down the down the line we might be able to perform some of the music we've discussed today? Absolutely. I think the one I'd want to do is Canticle. I'd love to do Canticle. Um, and I'm, I, I have, you know, a few contacts here and there that would actually be able to 
to, to, to provide me a cellist and some things to hit. I mean, percussion, by the way, not just, you know, anything. Not people. But, That's you know, great. It, it's been wonderful talking to you. I've been looking forward to this so much and it, it, you didn't let me down. Oh, Thank ben. you for coming on, Ben. So it's so and, nice to have you. And we're, we're, we're very fortunate that we're looking forward to um, COVIDly securely seeing Ben on, um, well, probably by the time this podcast has come out, we will have been able to see each other in person. Which yeah, is very exciting. Um, not going to say yeah. thank you, Boris. Um, mm. But but thank you, Ben, for coming on today, and um, thank, thank you for you enli- enlightening us with your actual research. And we promise to follow in your example going forward. Well, I do. <laughs> well, I can't promise anything, but I promise to be vaguely more researched in the future. Um, and um, and thank yeah. you, listeners, for listening to us ramble on about another great composer. Yeah. And we Uh, will see you all next week for another one. We have no idea what the plan is next week, but we will see you then. I'm waving goodbye to everyone, just so they know. We'll wave goodbye Goodbye, to you. Bye, Ben. And thanks, guys, for listening. And we will see you next week.